and thanks for joining us today on the Chicago Murderland Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Northside Katie. And I'm Southwestside Jen. We chill and thrill you with tales of murder in the windy city of Chicago and Chicago's outer limits. Yes, folks, it will be creepy, disturbing, gritty, sometimes gory, and always interesting. Always. Chicago is a city of neighborhoods and immigrants, of great wealth and bitter poverty. Chicago is also a city of industry, transportation, architecture, culture, and high finance. And you know what else? Deep Dish Pizza 2, which strangely is not one of our faves. Get out! (laughs) Just get it away from me. Just too much cheese. Both of us are lifelong or almost lifelong Chicagoans, and between the two of us, we want to share our amazing city with you. Of course, that means Chicago's murderous and dark side. We all know about killers like John Wayne Gacy and Richard Speck, but we want to tell you the fascinating and tragic stories of murder in Chicago that aren't as well known. You'll get to know the murder victims and the neighborhoods where they lived and where they were murdered. We walk the streets and sidewalks the victims and their killers walked. The city we love. The city of big shoulders. Papá trabajaba cuando vivía en Chicago. Siempre policía el fuego. Siempre al lado de la ley. This is Chicago Murderland. Una noche de verano en la tierra del dólar fue lo que todo Chicago vio. Déjenme explicarles que cuando el señor Alcapón de la ciudad se bañó. So now, if you're quite ready, let us begin. I want to say, how the fuck are you? Well, I'm dreadfully tired today, but I'm really looking forward to telling our story. Yes. And I did want to mention there's some weird stuff going on in Chicago lately. Apparently some of it you haven't noticed or heard about Mm because you just got your nose to the grindstone on all your grindstone stuff. But... um, yeah, I'm just noticing like weirdness. Like there's, well, the weather changed. It went from summer to fall in about five minutes, which that's how it happens in Chicago. Um, a couple people, a couple guys took a, a very ill-advised walk the a couple mornings ago across Lakeshore Drive downtown or the Rick River North area and uh, Streeterville. And, uh, you know, people are only going like, maybe 50, 60 miles an hour down that stretch of Lakeshore Drive. And uh, yeah, strangely enough, somebody hit them. Wait a minute. So what you're saying is that some guys... Some guys. Were they stupid white boys? 
I don't know what kind of stupid guy boys they were. All right. So were they stupid teenage boys? I don't know yet. Oh, we don't know. Okay. So just, so I'm going to picture little old men with walkers. Is that what it was? No, because they <laughs> climbed over the partition. Maybe they used... Because they were hit in the southbound lane, so they already had to cross. What were they doing? Oh, no, they didn't. No, they climbed over a partition, like a big cement partition thing. And just so you know, folks who don't live in Chicago, there's no there's there's no pedestrian access to Lakeshore Drive. It's a highway. No, it isn't. It's eight lanes across at that point. It's a highway. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Babe. This is this is another. I love that you call me babe. This is another. You're not from Chicago moment. So, and I think I can prove this one. Oh boy, Lakeshore Drive. The top speed legally allowed is forty miles an hour. I know. Which everybody ignores. Everybody ignores, but it rules it out as being constituted as a highway. Because of that also. Oh boy, you love to say I'm wrong about shit. On highways, you can drive a pickup truck on highways. That's true. You cannot drive a pickup truck or um, even like a panel truck, a van. A white a one. Semi, <laughs> a white one with no windows. Those right. are allowed on our podcast anyway. Because those are the abducto vans. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just weird. It is weird. You know, speaking of weird, yes, I have to tell you, I've received some feedback from those who know me and love me best mm -hmm. about our podcast. Mm -hmm. And I pressed them because, don't you know, people are kind of scared of what I might say if I don't like what they say. It's true. So I pressed and I cajoled and said, listen. You got to give me some critical feedback. Yeah, just be honest. I can take it. Yeah, me too. So uh, some of it was from you. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, those hard stops, hard cuts, uh, I'm going to work on it. And then also a very good friend of mine from Detroit said that we want to be mindful not to do a um, like zoo like that zoo radio kind of, hey, welcome everybody to the Jen and Katie morning zoo. Yeah. We want to be mindful. God, never. And I was like, fuckity fuck, fuck you, man. Oh my God, you're such a cruelly mouth tonight. I didn't say that to him, but I thought oh. it. I thunked it a lot. And I was like, fuckity fuck, fuck you, man. I like work really hard to like the orange. Come on. The annoying orange. All those 80s babies. Okay. But I will be more careful. I will be more mindful. Um, I will be more civilized. That'd be cool. I guess. But that was, you know, it was critical. Well, Michael, those negative thoughts are your critical inner voice saying those things to you. And I want to replace those negative thoughts with something positive, a daily affirmation. Affirmation? Yes. Now look in the mirror. Come on. Don't look at me. Only you can help you. That's it. Say, hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. I don't have to be a great basketball player. I don't have to be a great basketball player. 
All I have to do is be the best Michael I can be. All I have to do is be the best Michael I can be. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Yeah, so let's let's get on with the showgram. I'm with the showgram. I'm with the showgram. We are here to be storytellers, not experts. And even though one of us is a mental health professional. And the other one is nuts. That's a clinical term. We are just expressing our own opinions on this podcast. It may not be suitable for younger or more sensitive listeners. We got some swears. A lot. Jen, I know that we cover some very intense material. And before we do that, we joke around and we, we, we're we playful with each other because we're friends and we goofball, we spitball goofiness back and forth. Um, however, when it comes to the topic of Chicago and the murders that we're covering, we're very serious. We are very serious. We care about our stories. We care about our content. We care about the victims. I think sometimes we may be a little playful with each other to kind of kind of mitigate the intensity sometimes and the, the darkness, you know, of the topics that we're covering. And I think that's just a, a little bit of a, a release valve. Um, also, we are friends and we do like to give each other crap on a regular basis, whether we're recording or not. So that's just kind of us. Yes, we're very different people. You know, I'm I'm more street kind of blue collar girl. I was just doing Chicago, where Jen is a little bit more prim and proper. I'm a little more refined. Yes. And these things are true. However, when it comes to the folks that have lost their lives, we are their advocates. We want to make sure that their families know that we care. And sometimes maybe to the point where we become a little bit more immersed in the story than we think we're going to. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. Yes, I feel very affected by some of the all of all of the stories that we've covered so far agreed so with that chicago has a neighborhood on the far far north side it's as far north as you can get without going into the suburbs or for an unplanned swim in lake michigan and that would be the neighborhood that i was born in rogers park There's a bunch I could say about my neighborhood, but I suppose the word that most comes to my mind would be possession, and not the Linda Blair, green, slimy, pukey kind of possession. Two other metonyms come to my mind, ownership and belonging. Rogers Park, and I guess Chicago as a whole, have more meaning to me than others who reside within the neighborhood and city boundaries, because I was raised on and by the streets of this far far north side neighborhood. 
Some of my earliest memories were of going to Hardigan Park at the end of Albion with my dad, who taught me to click nickels together to get the attention of gray squirrels scurrying in the trees. Riding my purple birthday trike in November, given to me by my beloved big brother when I was four years old. Being outside on it in the early evening, watching the snowflakes in November fall for the first time. Hanging out with my besties, Lynn and Cindy, running the streets, staying out or sneaking out of the house and pretending like we knew something about something. Dodging the dodgy old men and younger men who were gooped up on GOP, having come back from Vietnam like walking zombies, under the train tracks, half-dressed at times, sharing bottles and needles. What did we know? We knew to stick together. And like Michigan, the greatest gift my grandparents, who settled in Rogers Park at the birth of the 1900s, and who I have never met, bequeathed to me when they chose to remain in the RP hood after the Great Depression hit. And my mother, the youngest of a large Irish brood, was left in the 1930s to care for a dying father and an aging mother in a one-bedroom walk-up apartment just up the street from St. Ignatius Church. But I digress. Lake Michigan kisses the edge of Rogers Park from Howard Street to Devon Avenue. And this big, wide, still, and rough, wild body of water knows each and every one of my secrets. It knows what happened to me on the dark streets of Rogers Park when I was not being watched over. And it knows why I have stayed here all of these years. For the pizza, J.B. Alberto's. They did not pay me for that mention. There is much more I could say about my neighborhood, my beloved Rogers Park, but I will save that for another episode. Ask almost anyone who makes their home in Rogers Park or Westridge what they like about living here, and inevitably, the idea of the neighborhood's rich cultural diversity will come up. Throughout history, our communities have welcomed newcomers. With each new group, new ideas, cultures, and traditions were introduced to those already here, creating a mix of cultures not often found in Chicago or any place else. 300 years ago, the sparsely populated northeast corner of Chicago was a land of birch trees and majestic dunes crossed by Indian trails running along glacial ridges. Small communities of Potawatomi, Ottawa, Chippewa, and others traded with each other and with European explorers, trappers, and traders who arrived by water to learn about the new land. Local Indians welcomed the newcomers, but eventually were pushed north when the 1816 Treaty of St. Louis designated the trail that became Rogers Avenue as a boundary line between the Native Americans and white settlers. Europeans settled south and east of the Indian boundary line and soon dotted the landscape with farms carved out of the wilderness, populated by German and Swedish immigrants and homesteaders from eastern states seeking new opportunities. One of the earliest arrivals was Philip McGregor Rogers from Waterton, New York, who settled along the ridge in the 1830s. Rogers rapidly amassed property at his death in 1856. The 44-year-old pioneer left an estate of 1,600 acres, covering land from today's Howard Street South to Devon Avenue, from west of the ridge to the lakeshore. This property eventually passed to Rogers' daughter, Catherine, and her husband, Patrick Tui Patui. In 1878, Patrick Tui joined with other landowners to incorporate the village of Rogers Park. 
Twelve years later, residents officially established the village of Westridge. Both were annexed to Chicago in 1893 as the city prepared for the world's Columbian Exposition. By the turn of the 20th century, Rogers Park was an attractive residential community for wealthy business owners and professionals, while West Ridge remained the site of farms and greenhouse shipping vegetables and fresh flowers by rail to markets in downtown Chicago. A post-World War I building boom led to the rapid growth, and both communities became home to a diverse population of immigrants and their children including an increased concentration of Jewish families, as well as newcomers from Italy, Ireland, and Eastern Europe. After the crash of 1929, population growth was slowed by years of depression and mobilization for World War II. And by the 1950s, the area began losing long-term residents to the pull of Chicago's new suburbs. In mid-century, newcomers once again increased the community's diversity. Older residents who left were replaced by African Americans from the South and other Chicago neighborhoods, as well as immigrants from Mexico and other parts of Latin America and the Indian subcontinent, all bringing their own foods, religions, and traditions. Refugees from Southeast Asia arrived at the end of the Vietnam War, and changing conditions in the Soviet Union brought a wave of Russian Jewish immigrants in the 1970s and 80s. Recent years brought new arrivals from Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and Africa, creating a culturally rich community that lives in harmony and truly represents the world in one neighborhood. And this is from a Tribune article, which we'll link to in our show notes. Shweta Morthy, who was born in India, sat alongside the Loyola Beach which is a beach in Rogers Park, reading as the waves crashed in the background. She said, I definitely feel very much at home in Chicago. She's 40 years old. She said, it's my chosen home in the U.S. and Rogers Park has been really healing and homelike for me. In the two years she's lived in Rogers Park, Morathy says, neighbors have become friends and she's built a community. That's despite the coronavirus pandemic and shutdowns. She regularly walks along Lake Michigan and picks up produce from local markets that remind her of her native India. More than 55,600 people live in Rogers Park. Wow, right? With 40% of them identifying as white, nearly 23% as Latino or Hispanic, nearly 25% as black, and about 7% as Asian Americans, according to a 2020 Sun-Times analysis. The racial and ethnic makeup of Rogers Park most closely resembles Chicago's overall makeup more than any other community area. At least 51% of the blocks don't have any racial or ethnic majority. How cool is that? That's very cool. It's very mixed and mixed and mixed and mixed. Mixy. Yes. Just as they have done across the city, immigrants have been influential in shaping the culture of Rogers Park. On a stretch of busy Clark Street, one of the neighborhood's key commercial thoroughfares, restaurants feature kosher meats, traditional Ethiopian dishes, and Mexican food, among many other types of ethnic offerings. The available housing in Rogers Park has been key to keeping the neighborhood diverse. There are elegant historic homes, there are large apartments for families and people have and continue to push for new developments to include affordable housing units. There are college students, including those who attend Loyola University, and just to the north in Evanston, Northwestern University. Young people come in and kind of start with an apartment for students or people who go 
out of school and it's what they can afford. Then they move down the block to a better condo. A lot of people come and would like to stay within the community. That increases the diversity too. But as in other parts of Chicago, blocks along the lakefront and close to Loyola tend to be majority white. In other parts of the neighborhood, farther from Lake Michigan, racial and ethnic groups tend to live together. Around Clark Street, some blocks are majority Latino, and the northernmost part of the neighborhood has majority black blocks. I'm learning so much. I know. Amon Music and Leah Schiffman, friends since elementary school, were at a park in Rogers Park and, inspired by seeing people hanging out, decided to pursue a photo project about the neighborhood. This resulted in Residents of Rogers Park, an Instagram showcasing stories about people living there and offering glimpses of some of the neighborhood's gems. It's a combination of everything beautiful in Chicago in one small place, Schiffman said of the neighborhood, something I've taken for granted in the past. The community can feel like a cultural exchange. And it may very well have felt like a cultural exchange to Yolanda Mina on a chilly winter afternoon, Tuesday, February 14th, 1991. Yolanda lived in a small third floor apartment in what was referred back to in the days by my friends and I as that creepy elevator building on one of the few remaining unpaved cobblestone streets near the intersection of Wayne and Morris. She allowed her four-year-old daughter, Angelica, to use the stairs to go directly down to visit her aunt and cousin regularly. Yolanda turned, drying her hands on the dish towel, just in time to catch one final glimpse of her daughter's beautiful shiny brown hair gleaming in the light as she left into the hallway. Angelica would never be seen again. This is episode four, Everyone's Angel. time a child perishes, a little piece, a tiny, almost invisible piece of society, a portion of our own humanity dies. And it doesn't really matter who the abuser is, the results are the same. A lost child, a delinquent child, an abandoned child, a child who feels no love and therefore begins to hate himself. Angelica had gone up and down the stairs countless times, and it was a common happenstance to the cousins to visit each other in the stairwell. This was their building, their home. At 6 p.m., little Angelica had made her way back up the stairs to her family when she encountered a neighbor. She was curious about the toy he was talking to her about. She walked toward it in his outstretched hand. At 6.30 p.m., Yolanda Mina sent her son upstairs to get Angelica for supper. 
She heard his footsteps pounding on the stairs and turning around to scold him, then noticed a disturbed expression of fear on his face. Mijo, deja de correr en la casa. Andy says Angelica left 30 minutes ago. Yolanda's face went ashen. My baby was all she could think. She picked up the phone to call the police. Hello? Police? Please come now. Mija Angelica, she's missing. She was down the stairs with her aunt and her cousins visiting, and my son went to go bring her back, but they said she already left. Por favor, please. Several Rogers Park Police Department beats were involved in the intensive search, as well as 20 employees of the City Department of Streets and Sanitation. Police canvassed and re-canvassed individuals who lived in the building and in the buildings nearby. They gave out flyers with Angelica's picture and description of her clothing. Officers and city workers looked in alleys, open basement doors, dumpsters, cars, backyards, and garbage cans. There was always the possibility that Angelica had wandered away and was lost. That was the hope. But again and again, the phrase, quote, to no avail, was the last line on their supplemental reports. Concern was mounting that Angelica had been taken. Multiple individuals were subjected to polygraph testing, including Angelica's father. And Officer Jay Stout analyzed all of the polygraph results and determined that neither the father nor any other family members were being deceptive regarding Angelica's disappearance. Nobody in Angelica's family had any idea where she was. It was becoming frighteningly clear to police that this might be a stranger abduction. Imagine four-year-old Angelica, tiny for her age, at nearly three feet tall and 32 pounds, projecting herself in circles on her favorite toy, a sit-and-spin, in the living room of her apartment, watching her big brother, who is twice her age, eight years old. He sprawled out on the floor, watching the Power Rangers on TV. The smell of mama's rice and beans cooking, and Angelica is happy because Mama said she can go to see her tia and cousins before dinner. She goes around fast one more time and stands up, runs to Mama, and hugs her legs as she stands over the stove. Mama watches Angelica, her little angel, as she leaves out of the open apartment door as she has so many days before, in her pastel top and aqua blue pants with the flower print. Love 
just a fool, a fool in love with you. handful of false sightings. One was reported by Evanston, Illinois police, a suburb just north of Rogers Park. A dirty, beat-up red van with a gray stripe was seen at a 7-Eleven store located near Devon Avenue. The Evanston officer thought he saw the missing girl with an adult male, but it turned out that the man, who lived in Northbrook, owned a small business that brought him to the city regularly, and he was making deliveries that day with his young son. The child was not Angelica. On February 15th, a resident of the building on Wayne told police she heard someone walking back and forth past her apartment door three times during the night, possibly to and from the garbage chute. The police then ordered all garbage pickup to be halted for that day for the entire neighborhood while they searched all of the garbage containers in a four-block radius around the building on Wayne. Nothing was ever found. On the morning of February 15th, Chicago police then officially changed the designation of the case from a missing child to a, quote, homicide slash murder. Michael Howarth, who lived in Unit 312 in Angelica's building and who neighbors described as a loner, suddenly confessed in a police interview to abducting Angelica, sexually assaulting her, killing her, and throwing her body into Lake Michigan. Police had started zeroing in on Howarth after doing background checks on residents in the building. He had a long criminal record, including currently being on parole for the rape of a six-year-old girl in 1984. Police also discovered that he changed the lock suddenly on his apartment front door in the days following Angelica's disappearance. They pulled him in for questioning that Thursday evening when he came home from work, and he quickly confessed. The intense search was over. Little four-year-old Angelica was dead. Police, fire department, and the Coast Guard sprung into action to gather evidence from Howarth's apartment and to desperately search for Angelica's body. Howarth was taken by police to the lakefront pier at Pratt Avenue, where he said he threw her body into the lake. Searches were conducted by helicopter for miles and miles up and down the lakefront, but Angelica's body was never found. Absolutely nothing that angers me more than to hear of a child who's been abused, assaulted, or raped, or murdered by someone who had previous convictions for child abuse, was able to plea bargain, released, and came out to molest and murder somebody else's child. That was Angelica Mina's story. 
I didn't know this child. I had never heard her laughter. But I did hear her story on the evening news this past winter in Chicago. She was a little girl in Chicago, four years old, Hispanic. She'd gone from her mother's apartment on the second floor to visit her aunt on the first floor. And in an hour, Angelica Mina disappeared. She was molested. She was strangled. She was thrown into Lake Michigan in an hour by a man in the adjacent apartment, a man who was a repeated, convicted child molester. And that night I'd come home from work and was just passing my television set and saw the news story, and I wept. I wept for that child that I never knew, Angelica. I wept for her because I realized that her muffled cries never reached her mother, who was just on the other side of the apartment, as her four-year-old was being strangled by a repeated, convicted child molester. And I wept for us, a society that says we care so much about the children, but apparently cares so little that we would allow a man with two previous convictions for kidnapping and rape of children to go free after serving only seven years of a 15-year sentence, to go free to kill an innocent four-year-old girl on the other side of her mother's wall. Michael Howarth was a 31-year-old convicted sex offender on parole at the time of his arrest in 1991. His criminal history started in 1977 when he was convicted of a felony sex offense. We don't know the details from the court records of that case, but we can only assume that he committed rape or an attempted rape, possibly on a child. He was not given jail time, but only four years of probation. And it's shocking that a sexual assault conviction would result in such a lenient sentence as probation. It was a very different time back then. Very. So apparently, though, he did not learn his lesson. In 1980, he violated his probation, was convicted of burglary and possession of a stolen vehicle. He was sentenced to two concurrent four-year prison terms. After he was released in 1984, he was then convicted of, a f- of the following, quote, raping and in taking indecent liberties with a six-year-old girl. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but was inexplicably released on parole in November of 1989 after only serving five years. What the actual F? Oh, God, I know. So we don't really know much about Michael Howarth, his background or his upbringing. We don't know what factors may have contributed to forming his pathology. But again, this story is not about him. It's about a little girl, her life, her community and family, and how her life was tragically taken by a monster. And since Angelica's body was never found, we'll never know for sure exactly what he did to her. The report of his confession states that, quote, he holds the victim's nose and placed his hand over her mouth, then places his finger into the victim's vagina. The victim is tightly held in this manner until she stops struggling. The offender then throws the victim into Lake Michigan. And it's clear to me that Howarth was a pedophile. The conviction of a previous sexual assault of a child, the confession of sexually assaulting four-year-old Angelica by placing his fingers inside her, all point to pedophilia, a serious mental and behavioral disorder. So what is pedophilia? 
Pedophilia is a form of paraphilia, which are disorders involving sexual arousal to atypical objects, persons, or situations. Pedophilia is characterized by recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors involving prepubescent children. Some pedophiles have thoughts and urges, but never act on them. I think most never act on them. Unfortunately, many of them do. And evidence suggests that there are literally differences in the structure and function of the brains of people with pedophilia. We don't actually know how to cure it. It's likely that Howarth watched and maybe fantasized about Angelica before he assaulted and killed her. He lived on the same floor as the Mina family and probably had encountered her before, as she loved to wander through the hallways and go on in and out of her aunt and mother's apartment. The abduction may have been planned, or he could have acted on impulse when he encountered her in the stairwell or the hallway. And, Katie, there may be others that we'll never know about. But in the end, Michael Howarth was convicted of first-degree murder and sexual assault. He's currently serving a life sentence in Pinckneyville Correctional Center in Pinckneyville, Illinois. He'll be there for the rest of his natural life. He's currently 63 years old. Jen, when we were in that building and we got to the stairwell and we walked into those stairs, Mm -hmm. it was a terrible, awful, dark, metal, rusty, gray painted over feeling of being trapped like in a coffin. Mm. I did not like it. Mm. I did not like it. That was frightening to me. Mm. That's why I rushed us out of that building. Mm-hmm. I didn't behave that way at other sites. Mm. That was scary for me. Mm. This man abducted that little girl who was just a little bit younger than my daughter at the time. And that's why I remember this case so clearly. My mother-in-law lived 45 paces from the front of that building if you took big steps. If you turn left out of the front of the building and walk to Morris Avenue, there's a hamburger and hot dog joint and roasted chicken. He went there, the murderer, to buy a soda pop. It's reported in the documents. I might have been sitting in there with my own daughter on the day that mm. he went there. A man who can go and buy a soda pop and remember that he's drinking his RC cola from a straw. Mm-hmm and then grab a child and hurt her the way that he did and take her life the way that he did. Mm -hmm. The Pratt Pier, Mm -hmm. all my life, Jen, there's a picture of me in the water right next to it. There's a picture of my mother 70 years before feeding the ducks. In that same spot. In that same spot. Wow. Yes. So our little angel. Truly. Our little angel in those waters. I know now Katie's getting upset. I'm getting upset. And this this guy, this man, you guys, whew, look him up. He's a monster. He's physically repulsive looking. Vile. Yeah. 
having said all of that, mentioning Morris Avenue, mentioning um, Wayne, which is the street that little Angelica lived on, there's a pizza place that's been there for a jillion years called J.B. Alberto's Pizza. Oh, I know it well. Tiny bit of history. J.B.'s Pizza and Alberto's Pizza used to be two distinctly different places. Oh, Alberto's Pizza was always on Morris Avenue in its current location. However, JB's Pizza was on Clark Street, a competitor. Yes. So JB and Alberto combined into JB Alberto's. Kind of like two great tastes that taste great together. Exactly. And, and they do. And they really do. You either love it or you hate it, but most people love, and I mean love JB Alberto's. JB Alberto's Pizza is phenomenal. It's like crack. Well, I don't know because I've never had crack, but it's like what I imagine crack would be. I shouldn't be asking that on. I mean, no. Okay. But I guess it would be, we would imagine crack to be like. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really good. It's, It's tasty. It's greasy, but not too greasy. It's it, the crust is maze balls. Yeah, I'm one of the fans. Jen doesn't like super cheesy pizzas, but mm. I have to tell you, at JB Alberto's, they have this hidden menu item mm-hmm. called the double decker pizza. <laughs> Fudge people, only in Chicago, folks. God, I don't eat meat on pizza, what? but dude, Whoa. delish. Okay, and here's the guy from JB's joined today as well. By Mr. Tony Troiano, JB Alberto's in Chicago, Illinois, one of the busiest pizzerias in the entire nation. That's pretty cool. How about that, Tony? How about that? Yeah. Well, yeah, we 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 work hard at what we do. Uh, thanks, thanks for the compliment. But there's a lot of great places out there. So, well, the chaos would have really came if you would have came on like a Friday or Saturday night. I think you were there on like wow. a Monday or a Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, then <laughs> yeah, it gets we were really. Gonna- the chaos, the chaos really ramps up. So yeah, I can't imagine a Friday night, you know, Friday night pizza night around yeah. the country. I can't imagine that. How many delivery drivers do you have on your staff? Well, so on a Friday or Saturday night, we'll be in the probably in the low thirties, you know, thirty to thirty-two, thirty-three, <laughs> somewhere around there. You know, wow. depends. You know, you get a few call, a few call-ins for you know sick sick call-ins or something. So thirty would be a minimum. 35 is good. Sometimes it's 28. You never know what, you know, kind of the luck of the draw sometimes. But And then when you add in, you know, someone's got to take these orders. Somebody's got to make the pizza, right? Somebody's got to not, not just delivery drivers. How, how many people on a busy Friday night in general are in there working? Inside we'll have uh, in the 40s. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, and we're squeezed. We're in tight. You know, we're in tight. We're, we're doing this all in three thousand square feet, so mm-hmm. it's pretty. You know, forced intimacy is another. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we're we're kind of like all kind of smashed together. So, if you're in the mood for a JB's pizza, please call seven seven three nine seven three one seven zero zero. You can also order at jbalbertos.com. If you are in Rogers Park, let them know that KT and Jen sent you from Chicago Murderland Podcast. Back to our kind of postscript 
discussion. What would have maybe prevented this from happening? What are some of the factors that, you know, we kind of see today that would have maybe prevented this crime? You know, and I made a I made a couple of notes. I thought, well, truth in sentencing for sex offenders, especially child sex offenders, he had a 15-year sentence that was reduced to just over five years. I, I, I don't get it. And prior to that, he was on parole? Prior to that, he was on parole. For? The burglary and, oh no, he was on probation for that. He was on, no, he was on probation for the first offense, which was a sexual assault. That's what I meant to say. So prior to that, he was on probation for a sexual assault, yes. which was in the 70s. In the 70s. In the 70s, people were not being charged and put away yeah. for sexual assaults on children. It wasn't seen as a pathology. It was seen as like a mistake. Oops. A bad judgment and Oops. error. Yeah. Like a moral failing. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, I it, accidentally violated this child. <laughs> <yes>. Oops. <laughs> Like, no, we. it's not normal to want to have sexual relations with a child. That's a pathology, and it doesn't go away, regardless of punishment. So now they have, thanks to the Child Protection Act, they have sex offender registries in every community. And people can kind of look and see if their new neighbor is a registered sex offender. Now there's issues around that, around fairness and dot, dot, dot. But in many cases, it's a wonderful tool for communities to protect, be able to protect themselves. And there's restrictions on where sex offenders can live. They can't live right next to a school. They can't do certain professions or activities where they might encounter children. Um, better post-release treatment for pedophiles who've been in prison. Treatment does help. It can help people readily admit when they're incarcerated uh, to counselors that they have these urges. It's not something that is easy to de to deny. Um, and the the symptoms and the thoughts and the urges can be managed. We don't know what the primary aim of the crime was for Michael Howarth. He may have killed Angelica accidentally. He may have killed her on purpose. That may have been part of the sexual assault. That may have been for the purpose of concealing the sexual assault. We don't know. But one last thing. When Howarth was arrested for the murder of Angelica Mina, the police noted that he had a tattoo on his arm, quote, death before dishonor. It's a well-known motto, and it normally signifies choosing death over relinquishment or abdication of whatever holds the greatest value to the wearer, sometimes loyalty to a country, a group, an ideology, Regardless of the reason for the tattoo, Michael Howarth clearly preferred dishonor in the actions that he displayed. Some people would give their lives to protect an innocent child. Howarth's life was steeped in dishonoring and destroying children and avoiding real accountability. For him, the tattoo should be the other way around. To this day, Angelica's body has never been found and it probably never will be. But even in the cold depths of Lake Michigan, we hope very much that she rests in peace. Rest in peace, sweet little Angelica.
my sweet Jen, you may be asking yourself at this moment, where would one find the Chicago Murderland podcast? You know, I don't know how you knew that, Katie, but I am asking myself <laughs> that right now. Let me hear you ask yourself. I'm asking myself, self, where in the world can we find Chicago Murderland podcast? You've got questions and I got answers. You can find us at our website, which is chicagomurderlandpod.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Chicago Murderland Podcast. Or if you want to, you can email us, chicagomurderlandpod at gmail.com. Then there's also that um, illustrious rate and review at Apple, Apple Podcasts. I don't know if it's a yeah. Fiji Apple or a Gala <laughs> Apple. I don't do Apple, but you might do Apple. And so first off, I think it's important that you go to Apple and you rate and review us. Give us four stars, please. Oh, yeah, maybe even 4.25, uh, seven. Silver or gold stars? Uh, gold, always. Fudge, yeah. I want gold stars too. Way more valuable. I want fudgy stars. <laughs> fudgy oh. gold stars. Is there such a thing? Please no. do that. We need you. We need you to do that. And here's why. Murder neighborhoodies, we love you. And when I say love, I mean love. And when I say you, I mean you and you and you and you and you and even you. That one who's over there going, she doesn't really. Yes. Alias. Alias. We love Alias. But most especially my Southwest side Jen. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. South. And back at you. Love you, Northside Katie. I love you more. I doubt that, but okay. Okay. Mm-hmm.